Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Welcome to New Brew, the Project Zion series that takes us through the New Testament by explaining, exploring, and experiencing the text. Our guides, as always, through scripture are Tony and Charmaine Shavala-Smith, and I'm your host, clueless host some days, but your host, Karen Peter. So before we begin, I want to remind our listeners that you can actually view all the New Brew and Hebrew and Shebrew episodes and see Tony and Charmaine's slides on the Latter-day Seeker Ministries YouTube channel. So check that out. Now, today's episode, we're still in the portion of the New Testament called the letters. Specifically, we're in the letter to the Philippians. And I have two questions um, that come up when we talk about letters. First, is this a Pauline letter? Did Paul write it? And second, are we still dealing with dysfunction and conflict? So just tell us up front if that's what, what we're dealing with. Well, that second question is kind of personal, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> the first question, yes, this is definitely from Paul. And um, we were going to talk about this a little bit later, but I can stick yeah, it in here, is that some scholars say they're not sure if this is one or two letters, but these are definitely in the Paul in Paul's own voice. Mm-hmm. He's using terms and he identifies himself as an apostle. He, he talks about Christ as he does in all of the other letters that we know come from him. Mm-hmm. And we get to see another side of him. You know, last time we got to see Galatians where he was angry and pretty he was pissy. He was, he was pissy. He really was. There, there isn't another word for it. I mean, I'm on, I'm on the West Coast. I can say that. I don't know if editors will take it out or not, but that's how, exactly. that's how I read it. He was angry because the very core of what this following Jesus thing is, was being neutralized and he's not going to have it. Um, but in this, this letter, we get to see another side of Paul. And this is a very friendly letter. And it's obvious that there are deep um, emotional, spiritual connections with this group. He loves them dearly. And they've obviously loved and cared for him. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, you can find out, you can see different places in the letter where he has allowed them to send money to help him while he's imprisoned. So he is in prison somewhere when he's writing to the Philippians and he is not sure whether he's going to die in prison or be executed or whether he may see them again. And he's Mm -hmm. kind of come to some, some um, peace Mm -hmm. with either possibility, but he says, but I think Jesus still needs me around to help you all. So I think that's, what's going to happen. And I'm really glad about that, (laughs) even though I being with Christ would be all right. So it's just a very loving letter, but because it's a loving letter, he's also able to warn them about some things. And we'll look at that in the experience part um, that they need to be be self-checking on if they are going to continue to grow as a community. But there, there is some dysfunction in this congregation as well. There's division. It's, it's religion and there's dysfunction. There's always dysfunction. Yeah. It's either the color of the carpet or circumcision, but you know, there's conflict. So I did, I did want to mention the fact you said that his language is very friendly in this letter. I was reading in one commentary and I wish I could remember which it was, but I don't reading a commentary and one particular scholar said um, the language that Paul uses in the first part of the letter is ingratiating language. It's rhetoric specifically culture. It's a culturally normative rhetoric that you use when you are building or deepening relationships with people. And so they said that you could see Paul's skill. I mean, we hear rhetoric and we think of it as negative, but he said you could see, or she said, you can, you can hear Paul's skill in, in managing, in, in deepening and forming relationships by how he uses the language in Philippians. There's very, very little frustration. There's a couple of places where he talks about beware of the dogs. And this is probably the circumcisers. Um, But other than that, 
it's, yeah, it is that respectful. He respects what they are doing and, and he accepts their love for him and their support of him. One, one of the ways he does this with the language he chooses is that, <clears throat> as Luke Johnson points out, he picks a lot of words that in Greek are compounds that start with the Greek uh, prefix syn, ko. Or with. Syn means with, ko. So like co-worker, co, co this and co that. And so the, the, the large number of words he uses in such a short letter that just the very word usage makes you feel, make, would make the readers, hearers feel like, hey, we work together with Paul, we're, we're quite a team, and he loves us, and we love him, and so it, it, it's, it's part, word, part word choice, intentional word choice. I don't think Paul's making this up. He really deeply cares for these people. They obviously deeply care for him, and this, this is still Paul's characteristic Greek style, too, which uh, one scholar describes as staccato. His use of Greek is like bursts. <laughs> and so it's, it's very much his style. And uh, so, yeah. But some, a couple of the things we can see, remember, remembering that these letters are ad hoc pastoring and theologizing. He's still trying to put words to things in these new and different settings that will click, that will be useful to people in understanding what does it mean to have the mind of Christ in you, for instance. Um, and so he's, one thing is divisions. There's divisions and some conflict, uh, probably between two pretty prominent leaders within the church there. And the other thing is, you know, this kind of hark back to Corinthians is that there appears to be some people who, uh, who think they're better than other people. And there may be more self-interest there, um, and he, but he he's pretty gentle in drawing attention to that this isn't the way that you follow Christ. Um, we'll look at that a little bit too. So uh, this this letter is addressed to the church in Philippi, and we'll get a little contextual information here. So Philippi is a a city. It was the the end of the line on a Roman highway called the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way, that went across Macedonia. And so it's, it's on the east end of the highway. Some parts <laughs> of that road still exist, by the way, because the state of Missouri didn't build them, right? <laughs> the, the, Roman, the Roman Empire built them. <laughs> Their so, infrastructure was solid, the Roman Empire. Yeah. So, so Philippi is at the, the far east end of that, and then the port city is Neapolis. According to Luke's uh, catalog of Paul's travels, in what Luke would refer to as his second missionary journey, this, this is the first Christian community Paul establishes in continental Europe. And he, you know, he crosses over to Neapolis and, and goes to Philippi, a major city. And Philippi also um, was <laughs> a retirement city for Roman soldiers, ex-Roman soldiers. So it has a lot of uh, Romanness in it. <laughs> so that he, he establishes this community there. It's kind of a strategic location, really. But uh, then, you know, moves on in his missionary travels. But it's evident from the letter that he was in fairly regular contact with them and that they, they, they really had a, a relationship quite different from Paul's relationship with the Galatians or even the Corinthians. So uh, that there's this, there's this sense of warmth in the relationship mm -hmm. there. So um, Paul identifies himself and Timothy as the author. That doesn't necessarily mean Timothy was writing with him, but, but often what Paul is trying to do when he writes these letters is indicate to the readers that, that it's not just Paul making stuff up, that it's coming out of a community. And it's not just Paul who's ministering, right. but that this is a team effort in all these places that they go to. So one of the equivalents we could talk about that is when you read a resource or even when I'm writing a resource, um, I, I would write we, even in emails to, to my, to people on a team with me, um, we should look at, or we could try, even though I could very well say I would like us to whatever, but I, I don't, I use we language because we're in this together. He's doing that here. Yeah. Paul, it's estimated that Paul has a kind of, a, we'll call it a team of perhaps as many as 40 people of different ethnicities and of 
both genders in terms of gender constructs in the ancient world. And so that's quite remarkable um, when you think about it. So he's not just a, <laughs> Paul is not a lone duck or a loose cannon, right? He's, he has a community that he works with and is responsible to. So um, Charmaine mentioned this earlier that the scholars have pondered whether this letter is a single letter or whether <clears throat> an editor has stitched together two or three fragments of a Pauline letter. The only internal evidence for that is a kind of abrupt change of tone when you get to chapter three. But you, I think you always have to remember that these letters were not, these letters were brought to a, a community by a delegate who represented Paul, who was going to read and talk them through. So changes of tone may not necessarily <coughs> indicate anything. It, it, it may mean that, that the, the person who's presenting the content to the gathered community is, is supposed to get more serious here or something mm -hmm. like that. The other thing is that in the mid-second century, there's a, a bishop in Asia Minor named Polycarp. We have his writings. And Polycarp wrote a letter to the Philippians, and in that letter refers to letters they had. It's not clear whether that means the Philippians in the second century had a bunch of Paul's letters, like a collection of them, or whether they had more than one letter he wrote to them. But in any case, I think most scholars currently would say, you can read Philippians as a single unified letter. You don't have to posit two or three letters stitched together. Right. And I think that's another piece to remember about these letters is that they were not usually written in one sitting, you know, so it's not like, you know, you have one train of thought and you're going to end with sincerely yours, but that these are intended to address specific issues. And so one day they might have dealt with <clears throat> what does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? And the next day is, okay, so the, here's the real on the ground issues that we're going to need to deal with. And so, you know, I think that's a, mm -hmm. that this letter writing was a, a time consuming mm -hmm. uh, time and costly uh, process. And, and, and by analogy, Karen, imagine if you or I started a letter in the evening and then put it, put it aside and then in the morning, we went back to the letter and tried to start writing in it again without coffee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it depends on the letter. If I was mad before I went to sleep, I probably cooled off by morning. So the letter is going to change anyway. But I can't even imagine writing a letter without coffee. So maybe. Or if you if you didn't sleep all night worrying about it, then when you get. <laughs> so we, we, may, we may not know how to account for the abrupt change. Mm -hmm own in a letter, but you don't necessarily have to assume that, that it's being stuck a together. A separate letter. Okay. One of the things that's cool about this letter is if you read it carefully, you can figure out what's going on behind the scenes. And trying to figure out the story behind a letter in the New Testament is really helpful to interpreting it. And so one of the, you can figure this out pretty clearly. So Paul is imprisoned. The location we'll get to in a minute. It's complicated. Yeah. Let's Paul, keep that kind of brief if we can. Yeah. Paul is imprisoned and uh, the Philippians hear that he's imprisoned, and they send Epaphroditus, one of their number, to him with a gift of money, because in the Roman world, commonly, when you were imprisoned, you had to pay for it yourself. So Epaphroditus comes from Philippi to wherever Paul is with money to support Paul in prison. And then Epaphroditus becomes so sick, he almost dies. But the news gets back to the Philippians of his, his gravely ill condition. And so then and they're worried <laughs> and they're fretting over, oh my gosh, what's happening with Epaphroditus. And then, and then Epaphroditus recovers and hears that the Philippians were worried. And so he's now ready to take this letter that Paul has written back to them and say, no, no, don't worry. I'm alive. I'm well. And also to take this letter has Paul's thank you to the Philippians for their, for their gift. And then Paul indicates that he's planning to come with Timothy or to send Timothy soon and then, then come himself. So it's an interesting exchange that's going back and forth here. But then that brings up the question, where is, where is he in prison? Traditional view is Rome. The problem with Rome is that from Rome to Philippi, land, sea, land, eight months, probably one way. And there's too much coming and going between Paul and the Philippians to warrant that. Another possibility has been his imprisonment in Caesarea, uh, that's mentioned in Acts, but again, it's the distance, the timing, and so on. It doesn't doesn't quite quite fit. So a lot of scholars have settled on that he's that it's an imprisonment we don't otherwise know about in Ephesus, because Paul does mention some really deep struggles he had in the city of Ephesus, and we know he was there, and you know, we know he and Timothy were there, and uh, Raymond Brown estimates that a trip from from Ephesus to Philippi would take less than ten days. 
So seven to nine days. So that would account for the coming and going. So and there could be a two week turnaround on. Right. So this also affects the date. If it was, if this letter was written uh, during an Ephesian imprisonment, it's more imprisonment. It's more like in the middle of Paul's ministry in the fifties, like 56, seven, eight, some, you know, somewhere in there. If it was from Rome, then it has to be quite late, like uh, 61 to 63. But I think current scholarship is, has sort of settled on Ephesus as the a best location for this simply to account for all the, the comings and goings. So it's a little interesting background piece to the letter. Yeah. So um, we kind of covered then place and, and time, time, date, and and we've mentioned the his, his loving relationships with the community. The basic issues that come up in this letter, there's one thing is that there's some internal strife uh, within the community. And Paul mentions two women leaders by name, Euodia and Syntyche. And he calls them co-workers, as Tony was talking about, the co being used quite a lot. But he's quite concerned and he's actually asking that the person who's reading this letter, who's brought this letter to them and is probably reading and interpreting it for the congregation, that, that he um, work at bringing reconciliation between these two leaders. And lots of scholars say, you know, the mention of these two leaders and the fact that whatever their conflict is, is disrupting the whole is probably that these two leaders are, are leaders of house churches. And again, when we're thinking about the church, that's all it is, is little house churches mm -hmm. that may occasionally meet together in one, one place. But, um, but if in within the city of Philippi, the leaders of a couple of house churches are in conflict with each other, then that's going to be a disruptive, you know, undertone. And so he's, that's the, the place where there's division. And it's, it's mentioned in the mm -hmm. beginning of the second chapter, but then specifically in the fourth, fourth chapter, chapter. So the start of the fourth chapter. Yeah. And so and, and we've been encouraging people to use the, the font book on um, the introduction to the Bible. And this is one, there might be one other place, but this is the one that the only place that I really have an issue with their wording of things. And it's, oh, it's so patronizing. Um, and Wait, who's wording of things? In font, in font. Is there oh, okay. what's happening in the, in Philippi and the church? Okay. They, they say, well, there's a couple of women who are bickering and it's just like, whoa. they're just downplaying the contributions of women and their leadership in the church. And now I'm feeling pissy. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's dismissive language it that is. somehow a oh, women bicker, Cat fight. But, but men have serious conversations. Or, right. Um, yeah. So, yeah. but that's one of the very few things in that, that book that, you know, somebody's attitude came through there. And, and, but when was that written again? I mean, it's not well, the second edition is what, 2001. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. I'm going to extend a little bit of grace, not very much, but yeah. more generous of you. By, by guys way older than me, Karen. So I'm just, okay. just saying. Because so. I'm kind of like, you want to see bickering? <laughs> I'll show you some bickering. But I think this is one of those places that you need to read carefully. And because otherwise you can do that. You can dismiss it. Oh, well, there's just some, you know, some little gossip or power, you know, power struggle. But Paul thinks this is an issue because yeah. these are leaders. He calls them co-workers of mine mm -hmm. and co-leaders of this mm -hmm. congregation. So I think that's, that's important just to get that bit of background. Um, and if we, if we take that and go back to the start of the letter, Paul addresses the letter to the church in, in, in Philippi and its bishops and deacons. Ah, good. So now be careful here. Don't read back office. This is the first generation. It, it's, These are it's, functions. Right. It's overseers and servants. Right. But he, sep he separates them out uh, to the church in Philippi with its overseers and servants. That indicates that if he's going to name Yodi and Syntyche, uh, and want this conflict somehow to be reconciled there they are bishops and deacons they are they are among the the leaders of, of these communities so I think that's just an important side note there were women leaders mm -hmm. in Paul's churches in the first generation I think that's very important for us to, to keep keep on the radar yeah so uh, other issues in the letter chapter three he deals with 
you know, we'll, we'll use the term Judaizing opposition, meaning it's, it's very possible that like in Galatia, it's people who have come who, who say, hey, uh, Philippians, we have a better way. You're not fully Christian yet, you Gentiles. You need to be <laughs> circumcised. And, and Paul totally calls that out in, in chapter three as a real Jew who, who can trace his pedigree and who, is, who identifies that he was a Pharisee. I mean, he, he, he says, uh, no, don't, don't do that, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's an important part um, in chapter three. And that would also maybe help us to, to date it earlier and mm -hmm. at Ephesus, yeah. is that this is a preemptive warning uh, mm -hmm. rather than an after the fact, what were you thinking? Yeah. Uh, because they've, because they have given in. So that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, another issue in the letter is <clears throat> help, trying to help the church imagine a future without Paul. So that's in chapter one where, where, you know, Charmaine's mentioned that, you know, he's, he's in prison. He's, he, he believes he could be executed. He believes he could die. And, and yet in chapter one, he's trying to, to, to lay out that uh, it's really interesting. God, God's God will see this work through without me is a kind of a way to, to, to put what's going on in mm -hmm. chapter one, whether with me or without me, God will see this work through. So he's trying to get them to, to think about beyond, beyond Paul, which is, I mean, actually, that's what a good leader would do. You always, how do you, how do you replace yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. And then, and then <clears throat> something we'll spend more time on is that he, another issue. It's not an issue. It's where he centers. He centers the he centers the letter, but then also centers tries to center the Christian life on uh, imitating Christ's own self emptying. Um, and we'll we'll come to that text. Self emptying of Christ Christ self Christ Christ who was in the form of God, empties himself of all privilege and power and takes on human form and suffers and even dies on, on, dies on the Roman version of the electric chair. Right. Right? It's, it's in chapter two. It's a marvelous uh, hymn, actually. And so- It becomes a slave. And I think yeah. that's really profound language in, in this culture. Yeah. And so what Paul's trying to do in this whole, whole letter is help the readers uh, keep rethinking their their Christian lives in terms of the image of Christ as one who who self abdicates, hmm. right? Who 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 self empties, who deposes himself in order to be there with and for others. That's that's the heart of the Christian ethic Paul is trying to uphold here. So those are some of the things going on in this very short but very full and amazing oh, yeah. letter. That's quite quite a, it's quite a delight to read. It's an upper after you've read Galatians. <laughs> Unless you like being angry. <laughs> and then you go back to Galatians. Well, there are days <laughs> where, that, where that may be. So All right. the explore part and start with any questions or observations that you might have, Karen. So I did, I did have one that caught my, um, my attention. And when I was reading about Philippians, a lot of the language about, um, there's a lot of discourse about Paul's giftedness with language and the tone of the letter and his compassion for the people, et cetera, et cetera. But then, um, let's see, I was reading a piece by Achaeus Ernesto Martinez, who is a Bible scholar who immigrated to the U.S. from Venezuela. So he's looking at it from his um, cultural perspective, and he names that in the piece that I'm going to share. And, um, and I, I gather from his piece that he's concerned about the same kind of things that we've talked about multiple times, which is when we read Paul's letters, we can't, we can't just translate it to our context. So I'll share with you what he says, and then I have a question about it at the end, <laughs> okay? Um, he says that Paul attacks some unknown Jewish adversaries and raises questions about religious and civil discourse in a multi-ethnic context. Hmm. He counteracts people who insist on having Gentile converts circumcised. So we've talked about that. Denouncing the practice as mutilation and calls its advocates dogs, evil workers, and enemies of the cross of Christ. 
and discounts several aspects of his own Jewish pedigree as rubbish. So those are all little <laughs> quotes out of the letter. So here's, here's where it caught my attention. We can understand Paul as shaming opponents in the situation of conflict and irreconcilable ideological differences. Okay, we can understand him in that way if we want to. But in a contemporary context of boundary crossing, pluralism and respect for others, do we think such rhetoric is appropriate for constructing religious and especially Christian identity? And I thought that was really interesting in our, con in our current context where there's a lot of name calling and a lot of othering and uh -huh. et cetera, et cetera. So how do we take care when using Paul's letters? How do we, how do we not fall into that? So there's a couple of ways I would start to address this and I wouldn't necessarily address it, all the issue, all the sides of it. But the first one is that um, it, the, the dogs are coming from outside. And so he is forewarning them of what the consequences are of the, if they take on the things that they're teaching. And so there's, um, it's, it's not so much about um, valuing everybody's ideas who are in the congregation, but warning them about something that will dilute what they believe. And, and related to that, then the other side of it, side of it is, as far as identity, this group does not have a deeply established Christian identity yet. They're just growing. They're children in their faith. And so in that case, there is this need to, I don't know if say protect, but to, um, to, to give them a place where it's safe to grow in their faith. With, while still giving them room to question it <clears throat> because the questioning is the growing, right? But, <clears throat> but um, to give them a safe place where these things that they are, are learning can take root so that then they, they are confident in what they believe and that that belief can change, but it, it won't be extinguished. So I would say that that's one of the dynamics and that, you know, and I would say that that's even true today is that you want to give people the basics. You want to, if you're learning how to swim, <clears throat> you want to teach them how to do the basic strokes um, before they start doing synchronized swimming. <laughs> and <laughs> synchronized swimming being a symbol for taking in all kinds of uh, different dance and choreography and all of these things. But first of all, they need to know how to breathe and how to, to so, so until they have that, then they can't branch out into these other ways or accept that other people have other ways of seeing things. Um, but it's pretty clear in almost all of Paul's letters that within the community, there is not uniformity of ideas and belief, that they're all they're, that people are all in different stages of encountering Christianity, trying to figure out what it's going to cost them. Um, whether how, how much they want to take it in and live in this alternate kind of way of being in their culture. So it's, it's, um, that's already there, that the mix of ideas is already there. And what Paul is concerned about is whether or not they're going to get a good start. They'll have deep roots that then they can um, diversify as they go. So if I, I'm just going <clears> to <throat> piggyback on that and then on, on what the commentator said. I mean, I, I follow what the commentator is, is arguing in terms of application. Um, but here's, here's one little issue then that's related to what Charmaine is saying. Paul <clears throat> is trying to form communities, we'll use the word communities of inclusion, where there are no uh, higher, lower, inside, outside, where there's no, you know, there's the, the ethnically better to be and the ethnically worse to be. Uh, Paul's trying to form communities of inclusion. And whoever these dogs are, <laughs> they're trying to come back in and form communities of exclusion. Mm -hmm. And so this is always, this is always, uh, this is a perennial challenge in Christian faith. How do you, how do you make space for the freedom that comes in Christ, but also create boundaries that protect the freedom you have in Christ? And so, while indeed we indeed we have to be careful not to take Paul's rhetoric and just willy-nilly apply it 
to, you know, to Hindus and Buddhists. And that's, that's totally inappropriate usage. But in terms of the, the community itself, we want to have, we want to create communities that do it, what Paul's communities did, that have boundaries that protect in, inclusion and that, that call out exclusion. That's what Paul is doing. That's another, another way to, to kind of look at that. And actually the letter itself gives us a way, a way to reframe what the commentator was saying. And that's in chapter two about the whole, whole business of, of self-emptying, I think. So yeah. Okay. And it comes before it, yeah. which will be the, the so, experience part. But so, it really brings us back to looking at the text sufficiently to establish some context. Yeah, exactly. Should we take a look at yeah, we'll, we'll pull up this piece from chapter two? And what we'll offer right now, we're still in explore mode. We'll offer right now is just give some analysis of, of this passage, but then we're going to come back to it later. Um, so in a different vein. So uh, scholars for decades and decades have identified this passage as poetic and is not Paul's usual language, except for one thing he added to it. In other words, what we have here is an early Christian hymn. Uh, most scholars who studied it, even though it's in Greek, would say there may have been an Aramaic precursor to it. Uh, so that means that this hymn comes from the earliest, earliest Christian community, which in poetic language is trying to, to uh, praise, praise what has happened in Christ and to, and to describe it, but in poetry. And so it starts out, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, the word forming Greek there is, is morphe, we get you know, morph from, the, the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. The Greek word behind exploit there is a word that means clutch or grab onto. So in other words, thus far in the hymn, Christ was you can read it as Christ was in the beginning with God, fully equal with God, and yet did not, did not, did not try to clutch at his deity, his divinity, but emptied himself, poured himself out, taking on the form of a slave. In other words, becoming, becoming the most vulnerable and marginalized in the Roman Empire, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And this is a point in the Greek poetry where it looks like Paul has added the phrase, even death on a cross. Right, so so the, the, the one who was exalted as divine has now become not only human, emptied himself and become human, but has even gone further, become a slave and even gone further, been publicly executed. And probably in between the being a slave and being executed is being despised. Yeah. Um, I think that's by his own followers yeah. <laughs> you so, know, in this case. So the, this, the hint, this, this hymn starts with an image of descent. And then notice where it goes next. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. It, you could translate it from Greek as super exalt. So in other words, bringing him up even higher than he was before, i.e. this is poetic language about the resurrection, and gave him the name that is above every name. Well, for, for, for Jewish people, the name that is above every name is the the unspeakable name of God in the, in the Old Testament. Um, even the name is above it. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bend and every, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Kyrios in Greek. Uh, so commonly the, the divine name in Greek speaking synagogues was, was never, never pronounced, but you, would, you, you could just insert the word Kyrios, Lord, in place of it. To the glory of God, God the Father. So, in other words, there's there's the descent, and then the the super exaltation. And so, um, for Paul, this this is a this is a hymn that he presumes the Philippians know and sing or chant. It it must have been sung or chanted by varieties of Christian communities. In fact, uh, Charmaine has mentioned before. That, that letter that comes from a Roman governor named Pliny, who was writing to the Emperor Trajan around the year 100 or so, saying, I got these people who are Christians, what are we supposed to do with them? I, I, I explored them and I discovered that it's really kind of a harmless superstition, really. They, 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 sing, a, they sing a hymn to Christ as to a God. And so it's very possible that this, this is that hymn, and that this, is, this hymn was sung, sung or chanted widely in early Christian communities. So Paul assumes familiarity with it. Paul 
believes that this hymn captures the essence of of the we'll call it the Christ event, and for him it also then gives the gives the ethical mooring points for the community. Right. So this is where theology or Christology and ethics link. So, so it's placed in, I yeah. think, a really uh, pivotal place within this book. It's right in the middle, basically. And, and I think that says a lot because it's saying what we're going to revolve around here is who is Christ. And the advice and the admonitions and things like that that follow keep coming back to this is about Christ. You know, it's not about Paul, because even in that place that you had you'd mentioned where he um, kind of devalues uh, some of his Jewish background, he does it because he says these things, which would have made me in, in the upper crust of Jewish society, I count as nothing compared to what it is that I found in Christ. It's rubbish compared to what this is that I found in Christ. And so, uh, you know, again, that's, it's like, he's reminding them um, what this is all about, you know, and all the things that the, the thanking and all the generosity that they've provided for him is he would see in line with their trying to live out this Christ, follow this image of Christ mm -hmm. and everything that follows is drawing from this image of Christ. You, I mean, you can find it everywhere. So at the, at the start of the letter, uh, you know, there's, there's, there are, there are Christian preachers who, who are glad I'm in prison, you know, because it's a chance for them to get ahead or something. But Paul's like, ah, whatever, I don't care. As long as Christ is preached, I'm fine. That's an example of self-emptying. Epaphroditus emptied himself by risking his life to come to Paul. Um, he wants Yodi and Syntyche to, he wants some, some way, the way forward for them is through mutual self-emptying. And, and so uh, and then the, you know, the one that Charmaine mentioned in chapter three. So it's like this, this it's, it's so cool how in this letter, who Christ is and how we are to live are linked in the closest possible way and linked around that word to empty. And I think if you can, I'm just so glad that this got included in this letter because it really gives you, if you ever want to figure out who Paul was, what's motivating him, this is it. This, the, the centrality of Christ is because of this, about who Jesus is, what he did, and um, what kind of an example he is as well as, you know, um, the varying ideas of, self of salvation, Jesus as salvation that are just still emerging and still haven't quite found words that are consistent in this time period. But um, if you want a, a good sense of Paul's impulse, um, it comes from here. And, and this, by the way, to, in my view, that this, this hymn and Paul's interpretation of it in the letter gives us a better way in the contemporary world to understand how how to relate to world religions and and those who are different from from Christians and the different cultures and so on. In other words, the the primary the primary at the heart of the Christian ethic has to be some kind of sense of humility and a willingness to let go and not cling, not grasp, but uh, empty whatever whatever one thinks of of one's religion and oneself. You you have to be able to let go of that in a way in order to get it back. And, and beyond that, there's this sense that you have to be willing to serve to be for the least. Um, and that's what, that's what demonstrates the power that, that God has the, in Jesus is being willing to serve others so they can see what it is that God is offering in Christ. Mm -hmm. And so that, again, works well for interfaith um, and even ecumenical kinds of conversations. Uh, are we willing to serve those who may even dismiss us, um, you know, as, as Christians, see us as nothing? Um, are we willing to serve them so that the reality of Christ has room? And, and once again, it's important to say that 
Um, language and concepts can always be misused and used to abuse people. And so one, one would have to be careful even with this image, not to say, oh, women should be servants, right? Right. In other words, you, you, could, you could turn this magnificent hymn and what Paul sees as a ethic for the whole community, you could turn it into uh, a kind of uh, bizarre justification for the subjugation of, of women or others. And that, that would be totally contrary to it. But, but once again, you have to pay attention to what you're doing with language. And if you are in the spirit of the language, right? And the spirit here of this, of this hymn would never sustain that, especially in a letter where Paul's referring to women as his co-workers or bishops and deacons. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I think it also has the opportunity to equalize. So I'm thinking about the two leaders. He names bishops and deacons. Was one a bishop and was one an overseer and one a servant, which would be, you know, a, a place of conflict as well. If they both empty themselves, now they're on the same level regardless of where they started. So it's a, uh, an equalizer of status, I guess, within the community. And, and the, in, the, in the Roman world, status markers were so, so important. And, and so yet, sought after. Oh my gosh. And, you know, because they, they solidified your value within the society. Right. But Paul thinks that in Christ, all those status markers have been erased. Right now, as apostle, he will sometimes pull that on you if you, if you <laughs> cross him. If, yeah, right. If you, if you want, like all good apostles would do. So, if you're out there, apostles listening, if you want to reintroduce hierarchical categories, which the Galatians do, which the Corinthians do, if you want to reintroduce upper, lower, better, worser. You know, Paul, 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 Paul's going to be all over you for that as, as your patron. But when, when the relationship between Paul and his readers is friendly, loving, solid, he doesn't go there, right? Not at all. He, he want, he really thinks Christian community should be like this. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lesson, there's a lesson in that. If you want to transpose it further into community of Christ, there's a lesson there about uh, priesthood and not priesthood. Uh, these are functions, not status markers. And so uh, if, you, if you turn those into status markers, you're totally missing the point of what it is, but also totally missing the point of what Paul would understand ministry to be about per this letter. Yeah. So. Any other questions? Um, nope, that was, that was my main question. Philippians is a pretty easy read. Um, Quite enjoyable when you go through it. I did um, just want to make a note for, for our um, listeners of a common uh, mishap that happens when you're writing the word Philippians. And that is that it's not Philippians. Mm -hmm. It's one L two P's. And I see that a lot in people when people write Philippians, they use two L's, one P. So it's kind of like revelation has no S and Philippians has one L. So just a FYI, you got, you got to, you got to think, think Greek here because the name Philip in Greek, philosippos, horse lover is what it means in Greek. So uh, a hippos in Greek, Greek is a horse and it has two, two P's. See. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Horse lover. Right. Right. Hippo lover. Anything else, Tony, that you I want think, to add? I think we've, we've covered kind of some of the main issues and done some exploring of the letter. Now it's time to experience it. Yeah. And just okay. as before we go into the experience part, just to remind people that um, our goal in this part of our podcast is to approach the scripture by considering how it's highlights. It, um, it highlights the experience of real people, whether that's the writer, whether that's the recipient, uh, whether it may even connect with our own lives, with real the realness there. And so we're, we'll see if something in their reality can speak to ours today. So we're going to approach the scripture as human authored writings that are heavily flavored by their worldview, culture, language, blind spots, <laughs> their own personal situations. And because we do not see scripture as God dictated words, but as the author's attempt to write down their experience of God, 
at work in the world in their time as they best understand it. And so we need to just be aware that their cultural norms are not the things that we should be uh, trying to take on, but what are the things that they're pointing to that are beyond, that are timeless? And so we can't determine um, if a scripture is valuable by, by whether or not it says exactly what we would say today. You know, sometimes that's our measure, right? Is, well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> and it's like, well, this is 2000 years ago. Of course they wouldn't say what we would say because their world is completely different. But what things do cross that time period that can help us connect to the God that they point to and the God that we, we yearn for. So, so the purpose of scripture is to give us a window into someone else's relationship with God and to see what might be useful to us in our own relationship with God. And with that, we're going to go to our scripture and I'll just scroll down here. And the passage that this, the early Christian hymn passage that I'm going to be looking at is the one that comes just before it. So this is what's setting us up for that particular scripture. And I'm just going to go ahead and read it out loud and we'll come back to it in bits and pieces. So if you don't get it all the first time, don't worry. So Philippians 2, 1 to 5. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, Make my joy complete, Paul is saying. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then he has these uh, little other pieces that adds on. Do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And I would suggest there that when it says others, it's also implying quite strongly community. Um, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, which is the beginning of what uh, the hymn that Tony was, was looking at earlier. So this is, you can see now how it's kind of setting up the, the recital of this hymn that people are familiar with. Uh, he's, he's preparing them for it, but he's also um, helping them to see what's happening in their own context, in their own congregation. So um, where I'd like to go with this is first to acknowledge that this is a passage that sometimes gets misused. Um, I'm not sure if you've ever seen it, but I've seen this passage used or parts of it. To, to shame a group into uniformity or to suggest that, that everyone must think the same way or believe the same way. And uh, for people who use this in that way, they usually uh, insinuate or come right out loud and say, oh yeah, you need to think like me, you know? Uh, and then we can all be uniform and we can be of one mind in Christ. Um, so that's, that's one of the ways I've seen it misused. Another thing that is done in this passage is to separate out the statements in three, four, and five, or three and four especially, where people will just say, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, and in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Um, uh, let each of you look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. And when they do that, they're not tying it to the top part, which is that these are what follow as you make room for those other pieces up above. And they really need to go together um, because those three and four especially can be really used, especially with the marginalized, to keep them in their place um, when there's a, a hierarchy or a patriarchy. Um, it's, a, it's a way to wield scripture to tell people that they need to be more humble. They need to not challenge leaders. Uh, they, they need to be more interested in um, their leader's security or the, or, uh, the financial well-being at times than of their own um, needs for survival. So I, I just want to, to note that these do get misused. Um, also, I would note that the people who tend to use these verses and throw them around <laughs> are usually 
already securely ensconced in the power structures. And they are not, in my experience, really good examples of keeping their ambition or their conceit or their self-interest <laughs> in check. Mm. Um, and that's just something to ask yourself when you see people misusing any part of this passage. So I think there are two ways of reading this passage that are both really constructive and both give a lot of room. I'm really glad you asked your question earlier, Karen. Uh, both assume that individuals can think and act differently and still be one in mind with Christ. And so there's a couple ways. And the ways I, I'm going to describe it is um, a cookie recipe. So you look at those ingredients in the one, one and two, um, saying, if you have these ingredients, encouragement and encouraging each other in Christ, uh, you're lovingly accepting, you share in the spirit, you have compassion and sympathy. Well, then if you have those ingredients, you can make a darn good cookie that's going to really satisfy your community and help them to grow. Uh, you will have the mind of Christ at work in your midst if, you're, if you have these ingredients. And then some of these ingredients, uh, the spirit has already given us, and some of them are ones that we have to generate or grow in our midst. But they do not require us to all be robots with the same programming or way of thinking um, or even our, the same way of acting in the world. They, these are ingredients, and if they're there, you've got, you're in the mind of Christ. A second way of looking at this passage is as an ongoing work in progress. I really want you to focus on one and two. You'll notice that it says, if there is any encouragement, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, then there's something happening. And um, you are one in, you're in one mind in Christ simply because you are trying to make room for the attributes that are listed. You may not be good at them. Um, probably most of us are not naturally good at all of those things, or maybe even any of them. But if they are always before us and we want the Spirit's help in growing them in our community, then we are already in the mind of Christ. We are already of, of the same mind in Christ. So in this one, a good synonym for mind is disposition. Uh, basically, your shared yearning to let Christ's disposition have room in you by encouraging others in their efforts to know and follow Christ. Offering consolation, you see that as comfort or support to others. Listening together for the Spirit's voice. Practicing compassion and sympathy. Notice it's practicing. It's not, we got that down and now we can move on to something else. Um, and, then, and all of these things then attune you to Christ already, when where Christ is already in your community. And it allows his mind to be found in ours. Um, and both individually and as a group. And, it, and this is really interesting because we get to find Christ's mind in us, especially when we are struggling to find harmony in the group. So the struggle is not failure. It's, it's success. Um, because it's a sign that Christ is actively reshaping us. And so I think that's a, another helpful way of, um, in either of these models, that you can see that different views on a lot of different things are not required. And maybe even you could belong to different political parties. Uh, but the fact is that if your core is centered in Christ and that you're trying to make these make room for these things in your life and your life together if you're trying to live like christ basically it means you are of the same mind um so and you'll notice that those two statements uh the verses three and four are directly related to the first two as i mentioned earlier and i would say that those things in three and four are the things we get 
to choose to turn down. <laughs> Some of these are survival kinds of things that we have in our lives, but they can become our gods. They can become all encompassing. And so these are the things we get, we can figure out how do we want to turn down our selfish ambition or conceit? How do we want to turn down that desire that many of us have to, to know that we're better than somebody? Um, but how do we turn that down? Because when that's turned up, those things in the verses one and two are really hard to make room for. And then the, the last is connected to, uh, to the ones in three, to not look just to your own interests, but to the interests of others. But again, you can't do those unless you've turned down your self-interest and decided that there's something else that you need. So only when we shift our attention and caring to others, we can be so full of ourselves. Um, even when we hate ourselves, we're still the main focus. It's still taking up the whole <laughs> viewfinder. Um, there's, and there's no room for other people's realities. And sometimes our self-interest, being interested in ourselves, is really convenient um, because it can make us oblivious to the injustices of the world around us, um, especially those that we may have some, that we may be contributing to in some way. And some, I think that's why some people do go to the letting your own things become the whole focus is because it's just really a lot easier to block out those uncomfortable realities um, that we might be able to do something about, by the way. Um, so we need to turn down our self-interest so that the interest of what's good for community or creation and other individuals can have some space. And I think one of the things that the, the pandemic has helped a lot of us see is how much our self-interest can come completely blind us to others' needs and the realities of others. And we can go back to that self-interest as an excuse for not having compassion or being concerned about the health or welfare of others. So a little bit of a sermon on this passage, but it's leading us into the questions I would like you to consider taking with you. So the, the goal of all of these, uh, this passage is to invite us to let Christ be our center together, not just individually, though that's there, but also together as a community. And so here's some questions. Think of a group or congregation that you've been part of. Which of these attribu attributes were or are present there? And there's the encouraging others in their efforts to know and follow Christ, offering consolation to others, listening together for the Spirit's voice, practicing compassion and sympathy for each other. And the reason that I wanted to bring that out is that sometimes uh, if we're in a bad situation with a congregation or with a group, we may not recognize that some of those things are there and that they might just need some growing. They might need some encouragement to, to let those have more room. And so, um, how might they be grown? And then for us ourselves, it's hard to imagine living in a completely different way. And this is part of Paul's um, message to the Philippians. They're going from, most of them are Gentiles, maybe all of them, and they may have some, ex some experience with Judaism, but for the most part, they're coming from Gentile culture and they don't know how to be this Christian thing. And so that's where you see Paul uh, saying, well, use me as an example. You don't have other examples around you. Use me or use our team as an example. Um, so I want you to think about who do I know that has been a good example of one or more of these dispositions, um, these ways of having the mind of Christ in you. And then take a moment to say, which of these, if any, is calling to me to incorporate more fully, to, to ask the spirit to help? Um, give space in me. So there's a first run at this. And then in order to make room 
for the mind of Christ in me? Which of these tendencies do I want to turn down? And maybe getting to the want place <laughs> is the hardest part, <laughs> but um, ambitions, uh, plans that only benefit me, uh, self-assurance that I'm always right, uh, desire to think of myself as better than others, or focus on my own interests. Which of these do I want to turn down? So there's room for this other thing that being centered on Christ makes possible. And then the ouch question, at least I think it's an ouch question. I always have to have at least one. <laughs> and then um, this goes back to making self-interest our, uh, our whole view. Whose interests have I been ignoring in society, in my family, in the groups or congregations I'm part of? And that's kind of self-explanatory. Um, we sometimes are actively ignoring these things, sometimes passively, but uh, it's almost always a good question to ask ourselves. So Charmaine, when you were walking us through um, this scripture, what came to mind, and a lot of our listeners were unfamiliar with this until they encountered community of Christ more deeply. And that is what we call faithful disagreement, yeah. which is a way to be unified in Christ, even with diverse opinions and perspectives and ideas, but to, um, to focus on what keeps us as community and the blessings of community, even in the midst of all of that diversity that we have. Um, so if you are unfamiliar with that, um, the faithful disagreement statement is somewhere on the Community <laughs> of Christ <laughs> webpage. Um, and maybe I can uh, get, get the editors or Brittany to post a link to that when we, um, when we upload this uh, episode so that people can find that and read that because that's a real hallmark of Community of Christ on how we handle this kind of discord together it's an intentional effort to say oh of course we're going to have we're going to be in different places but it doesn't mean that christ isn't at work or christ isn't calling us forward together yeah, yeah. I, oh, i'm so glad you thought of that yeah. okay so um with that and you know you are really good for the ouch questions charmaine i always wait just which one's going to be most painful so <laughs> i've got my own I got my own choice out of your multiple choice question there. But are there any last thoughts or comments you want to make about this uh, letter to the Philippians before we close up? I think, uh, yes, a favorite passage of mine that's right in chapter one that is totally applicable to community of Christ right now. Um, and when I quote this passage, keep in mind that, it's, that it was written by a guy who thought he might die before he got to see everything fulfilled. And it's that passage in chapter one, verse six, where Paul says, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion, i.e. God, that God who began a good work among you will bring it to completion. That passage gives me uh, hope. Yeah, Perfect. absolutely. Very much a part of the restoration tradition as well. Okay, so I found something I wanted to close with that I thought uh, Paul might approve of, including in his letter to the Philippians. It actually comes from Jan Richardson, who allows people to use her work as long as you say where you got it. So this is a portion of a poem, Oh God of Wisdom, We Come, and it's out of her book In Wisdom's Path. Found this. I'm just going to read the last stanza. And yet to your table, we come. Hungering for your bread, we come. Thirsting for your wine, we come. Singing your song in every language, speaking your name in every tongue, in conflict and in communion, in discord and in desire, we come. O God of wisdom, we come. 
So Paul had a, a hymn or a poem in the middle of Philippians. So we'll close with uh, Richardson's words that are very hymn-like as well. So thank you, Tony and Charmaine Chavala-Smith, for walking us through Philippians today. Our next episode will be first and second Timothy. So we're going to see where the early church went post Paul and have a little discussion about that. That should be interesting. So I hope you join us for that episode of New Brew. Until then, I'm Karen Peter. We've been with Tony and Charmaine Shabala-Smith. This is New Brew. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines.